So today we're going to bounce around all over our Bibles going through the scriptures. So some of them I'll just be real quick to, to speak them to you and you don't have to stay up with your Bible. <clears throat> but 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And today I'm going to start a two-part series, and we're going to just give a quick overview of the biblical doctrine of adoption in the New Covenant. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we'll search the scriptures and have a deeper, more biblical understanding of this adoption, which Peter Masters calls the crown jewel of God's grace in Christ. And I just start off with this one question for all of us. What motivates Christians to live in the manner in which they live? Do you think about that? What motivates you to live in a manner which would glorify God? My answer is that is the doctrine of adoption in the new covenant should be a key motivation in every aspect of our lives of slaves to Christ and of children of God. And so during this series, I want to establish what the biblical doctrine of adoption is. So we're going to define it. I want to present some of the benefits and privileges of being the children of God. And then in part two, we're gonna, I'm going to present obligations and responsibilities of being children of God, adopted by Him. And we're going we're gonna to look at it, and we're going to make distinctions between other doctrines as well, and we'll go over that in a few minutes. And I want you to hear from William Perkins, and this is the King James Version. version. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. And it's a behold, this is a great thing. Look at this. I'm amazed that I should be called a son of God. That's what John's saying there. I'm amazed at this. This is amazing. Right? William Perkins, he said that a believer should esteem his adoption as God's child to be greater than being the child or heir of any earthly prince, because the son of the greatest potentate may be the child of wrath. But the child of God by grace hath Christ Jesus to be his eldest brother, with whom he is a fellow heir in heaven. He hath the Holy Ghost also for his comforter, and the kingdom of heaven for his everlasting inheritance. Perkins lamented, how few people realize this experientially. At earthly preferments, men will stand amazed. But seldom shall you find a man that is ravished with joy in this, that he is a child of God. How many times do you walk around with joy 
saying, I'm a child of God. Mr. Perkins, he lamented about that. Why don't more people have joy at this? Again, the ESV, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. J.I. Packer says of this, in knowing God in chapter 19, he says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Have you ever thought about that? He goes on. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian's name for God. So my first question after reading that, the Bible says God is our creator. Then aren't we all children of God, and therefore do we need to be adopted into the family of God? Aren't we all just brothers and sisters? Answer. It's true, God is our creator. But we were all born spiritually dead in our sins. Born children under the federal head, our representative Adam. Born slaves to sin, born condemned under the law, and our nature, children of wrath. Therefore, we must be adopted by God to become children of God. And if we are not adopted by God in Christ, we should have no assurance of our salvation. Because adoption by God in Christ is a necessary provision of grace and salvation that has been secured in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without adoption, you are not even a Christian. And I'll just read to you so you you know what I'm saying. I said this, and I believe it's true from Scripture. Romans 5, verses 12 and 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Death and sin have reigned through all men. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, you, everyone in here, you, me, were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by children, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And I wanted, to, I wanted to speak those to you so you see your need 
to be adopted. Most of us think our need is just forgiveness, but we have a, a, a more of a need than that. We need to be adopted into a new family. And so now that, we, now that I've established your need for adoption, my need for adoption by God into his family, I want to look at some more doctrines that are just as necessary as adoption, but these are distinct, but never separated from adoption and God's salvation in Jesus Christ. They all, all of these doctrines have to happen for those who repent and believe the gospel. These doctrines are regeneration, justification, and sanctification. And I'm just going to give a quick definition of each of these doctrines to show that they are distinct but necessary in the salvation of every believer. And the reason I want to do this is that many Christians do not understand these doctrines. And they don't, they don't separate them. They mix them all together, which diminishes the value and the necessity for each one of these doctrines, especially adoption. And it diminishes the necessity for these doctrines that these, these doctrines were purchased by Jesus Christ himself for the salvation in the gospel. So you need to know these doctrines. You need to know what your Lord and Master did for you. You need to know why the Father sent him you need to know why Jesus, when he ascended on high, sitting at the right hand of God, sent his Holy Spirit for each and every one of you who's been adopted. So we need to look at these. So I'm just going to give you quick definitions and quick, quick, maybe some quick verses on each one. Regeneration, otherwise known as the new birth, is when God gives us the nature, the disposition, and the character of his sons and daughters. He doesn't make us his sons and daughters, but he gives us this new nature, this new disposition, these new desires. <clears throat> and I'll just read John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see there, we need regeneration. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. New disposition, new nature. In 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. These are all verses on regeneration, what that looks like. Charles Spurgeon said, the difference between regeneration, or the new birth, and adoption is that the new birth gives us the new nature of the children of God, but adoption gives us the right, the legal standing to be the children of God. And Albert Martin said, adoption is a blessing of God's salvation in Christ, distinct from and higher than, but never separated from regeneration, the new birth. So it's separated, it's distinct, it's, it's not separated, but it's a higher blessing. Adoption is a higher blessing than you being born again. Let's look at Justification. Justification is the remission of sin and absolution from guilt and punishment or an act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him in righteous, as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. And I'll read to you real quick from Romans 3, 21 through 26. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Read to you Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So justification, it has to do with forgiving you of your sins so that you are righteous in front of a holy and perfect judge. When a sinner is justified by God, God makes that person right according to God's law, and God God the judge declares him to be not guilty. But being not guilty does not make that person a child of God. Your justification does not make you a child of God. Albert Martin, he said, Adoption is a blessing of God's salvation in Christ, distinct from and higher than, but never separated from justification. So without justification, you can't be adopted. You must be pardoned by God the judge. There must be no more wrath upon you but you still need to be adopted. So sanctification, we're going to look at that. In the Ordo Salutis, it goes justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, if you know anything about the Ordo Salutis. But we're going to skip to sanctification just so we see the difference between that and adoption. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So sanctification, we are dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. And this is all by God's free grace. It's his work in us, sanctifying us. In my notes, I have Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, but we're going to skip that for the sake of time. But I will read to you from a book called A Puritan Theology, page 541. And and this, the title is, Adoption is Not Sanctification. And Thomas Brooks, he asserted that sanctification is simply a living out of one's adoption and sonship. So the Puritans, they would resonate with J.I. Packard, his assertion that sanctification is simply a consistent living out of our phileo, relationship with God, into which the gospel brings us. It is just a matter of the child of God being true to type, true to his father, to his savior, and to himself. It is the expressing of one's adoption in one's life. It's a matter of being a good son, distinct from a prodigal or a black sheep in the royal family. And the basic idea behind that is If you are not adopted, 
you will not be sanctified. But you can also not be sanctified if you are not adopted, right? So through sanctification, the believer is brought into a fuller experiential awareness of his adoption. He learns to grasp more fully what adoption is and learns to live out of its wonders. That's what the Puritans would say. So let's look at this doctrine of adoption that I've been telling you about. And I'll give you a definition from Sam Waldron's book, A Modern Exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession. And we'll look at a couple different definitions of it. But we'll start with this one. Adoption is a change in legal status from that of a slave to that of a son of God, which takes place by faith at the moment of union with Christ, but will be publicly revealed at the resurrection. It is an act of God's free grace flowing from the electing love of God the Father in eternity and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in time, and immediately confers the spirit of adoption, and the privilege of being one's, one of God's heirs, as well as other privileges, obligations, and liabilities. And I hope you saw in that definition that it's Jesus Christ, it's God the Father, and it is the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God. They are all involved in adopting you and making you an heir of the Father in Christ. I'll read to you some verses on adoption in John 1, 12 through 13, and this will show the legal status. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, which means legal status, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're born of him, you have the right, the legal standing to be a child of God. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Titus 3.4-7, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see the triune God working right there, bringing you into his family, a child of wrath, now a child of God. I'll read the definition of adoption in chapter 12 of the Baptist Confession, the 1689. God has granted all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, chastened by him as a father. Yet they are never cast off, but they are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. 
You can never lose your adoption. Because it's God who did it. And it's God who's doing it for all eternity. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is adoption? Answer, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we received, we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So I hope that gave you kind of some different definitions to think about on the doctrine of adoption. Now that we've looked at these key doctrines, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and adoption of our salvation in Christ, I want to give you a a good starting point. I think I've given you a good starting point to further your studies on these doctrines, right? And we should ask the question, why does Peter Masters call adoption the crown jewel of our salvation? Why would so many men be saying that and you never even hear this doctrine? You're never even taught this. And why does Albert Martin call adoption the highest blessing of God's salvation in Christ for us who are adopted? The highest blessing. There's no higher blessing. And I think J.I. Packer, he answers both of these questions in his book, Knowing God, chapter 19, and then he writes, Adoption, the highest privilege. And he says here, Our first point about adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher than even justification? This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God in which, since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us as sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show that the truth of the statement we have just made, that justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not the question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God. More than that, we need anything else in the world, and this gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. The first gospel sermons to be preached, those recorded in Acts, lead up to the promise of forgiveness of sins to all who repent and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In Romans, Paul's fullest exposition of his gospel, the clearest gospel of all, in Luther's mind, justification through the cross of Christ is expounded first and made basic to everything else. Regularly, Paul speaks of righteousness, remission of sins, and justification as the first and immediate consequence for us of Jesus' death. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing, in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. 
because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Some test books on Christian doctrine, Burkhoff's for instance, treat adoption as a mere subsection of justification. But this is inadequate. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares a penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to death for their sins that they deserve, or that their sins deserve, because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place at the cross. The free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any dose of fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I know that was long, but I wanted you to hear that whole thing. Could you imagine being in court and the judge says, not guilty, and just sends you on your way? I mean, is that, what a blessing. Not guilty. But if that judge says, not guilty, and, and you're blessed, you're not guilty, and he says, now, be my child, come home with me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to make you who were guilty to be my child. What a greater blessing. So now that we have a better understanding of this doctrine of adoption, I ask this question, have you been adopted by God through Jesus Christ into his family? Have you been adopted? Have you been adopted not by your own works, not by your acceptance of Jesus, not by your baptism, not by the faith of your Christian parents, not by the sinner's prayer that you prayed, not by your own self-love? Have you been adopted by God through Jesus Christ? That's the question. If you cannot answer this question with a joyful yes and amen, then the benefits and the privileges that we look at next will be far from your reach. They'll be of no value to you. And the responsibilities and obligations that we look at later, they'll be a heavy burden on you. And they will be detestable in the sight of God when you try to perform them. 
Everyone who has not been adopted by God in Christ is considered alienated from God and their inheritance is wrath. Do you think about that for yourself and for others around you? If they haven't been adopted, their only inheritance is wrath for eternity. So let's look at some of these benefits and privileges that I call them. And listen to what John Tennant said of adoption, and then we'll look at these benefits. So John Tennant, in his sermon on John 3.1, this was in the year 1730, said, Adoption may be described as a gracious declaration of the blessed God, whereby he admits and receives those who are by nature strangers and enemies in heart and life to his majesty, but now through grace are regenerated, effectually called, justified, and united to Christ and his family as sons. And he communicates to them the privileges of children. And he's saying God, by the Holy Spirit in his word, communicates to each and every one who's been adopted that these privileges are theirs because God has freely bestowed it upon them. So let's look at some of these privileges. The confession mentions 14. There's more than that. We'll look at 12 today. So number one, privilege or benefit. God is now your father, and you are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. This is taken from Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's a benefit. It's a privilege of being adopted. The gift of God adopting Christians as his children in the new covenant is so great a gift that it causes Christians to find their identity in Christ and allows Christians to look up to heaven and call upon God as their Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Something you never did before your adoption. Number two, you have an inheritance. The triune God has become the inheritance for all of eternity. He's your inheritance. Romans eight seventeen, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Charles Spurgeon, speaking on this verse, he says of this inheritance, no Christian has ever realized to the full extent what this means. That believers are heirs. But what is the estate, he asks. It is God himself. We are heirs of God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. It is not just that God gives us so many privileges. God himself is our inheritance. Do you remember what God says to Abraham? Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and I am your reward. God is this inheritance to his adopted children for all eternity. That alone should make any non-believer want to come to Christ. Although we don't. Number three, access. The adopted children of God now have access to God their Father in prayer. Ephesians 2.18 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And listen to our master, Jesus Christ, teach his disciples how to pray. In Luke 11, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Father. Jesus taught his disciples to call God their Father. This is before adoption was even mentioned in the New Testament. But Jesus had already been teaching it. Number four, freedom. God frees his adopted children from their bondage and slavery to sin. And God frees his adopted children from the condemnation of his holy law. God's adopted children have the freedom to live knowing that God, their loving Father, will never again place his wrath upon them. That's a beautiful statement. To know he doesn't look at me as that judge to judge guilty or not guilty. But he looks at me as a child. He looks at you as a child. I put Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. In Galatians 4, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. His holy law no longer condemns you, even though you still try to follow it. There is no condemnation. Sin is no longer your master. You have a new relationship with sin. Number five, compassion. God understands his adopted children with compassion. God chooses to have a fatherly compassion on his adopted children, knowing everything about his adopted children. Webster's 1828 on compassion, the definition. A suffering with one another. Painful sympathy, a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress of misfortunes for another. Compassion is compounded of love and sorrow. Psalm 103.13 is what they quote. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to all those who fear him. And they're showing you this father shows compassion to his children. And we have an example of this. And it kind of looks like in Luke 15 when the father sees the prodigal son returning. And he arose and he came to his father. The son is coming to his father after blowing his inheritance. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. That's how your heavenly father treats you now treats you with compassion because of the adoption that his son purchased for you. Six, 
God protects his adopted children by becoming their refuge. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children have a refuge. Refuge, the definition, that which shelters or protects from danger, distress, or calamity. A stronghold which protects by its strength, or a sanctuary which secures safety by its sacredness. Any place inaccessible to the enemy. And that's God for you who are adopted. He is your refuge. The enemy can't take away your faith. The enemy cannot take away your adoption. It's already legally, it's done. The purchase has been completed. Number seven, God provides everything that his adopted children need. And Matthew 6 and 25, 34 shows us this. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we wear, or what shall we eat? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, and he will supply them. John Snyder is speaking on this, on the positive side of these verses. He said, God has obligated himself by his adopting children for himself to continually supply all that his children, his adopted children, need. So God obligates himself by adopting you as his child to give you everything you need. Mercy, grace, love, everything you need for life, holiness, godliness is all provided by your heavenly Father. Number eight, God gives the greatest gifts to his adopted children. If you then who are evil know how to, good, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Oswald Chambers, he says of this, he says, God spoils his children with these good gifts to the point that they are embarrassed about it. That's our Heavenly Father. Spoils us, lavishes us. We are embarrassed to show people our gifts from him. Number nine. God sends ministering spirits, angels, to look after his adopted children. And I quoted here Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those 
who are to inherit salvation. And if you spend too much time looking at angels, you could get yourself in big trouble. So I'm going to quote the Puritans here again. And I'm going to quote Willard. Our Father gives his angels as ministering spirits to serve us for good. They guard us and watch for us. Willard called them tutelary angels who guard and defend us from evil and watch for our good. They pitch their tent around about believers. They bring down messages of peace from heaven, even answers of their prayers. They strengthen and confirm them in their secret conflicts. And when they come to die, they are a convoy to carry their souls home to eternal rest. These are all done because you were adopted by God, and he's sent these angels, these ministering spirits, to serve him in looking after you. Number 10. God, being the greatest father for his adopted children, disciplines and instructs his adopted children for their good so they may share in his holiness. Webster's 1828. Discipline, the definition. To instruct or educate to inform the mind, to prepare by instructing and correct principles and habits, as to discipline youth for a profession or future usefulness, to instruct and govern, to teach rules and practice, and accustomed to order and subordination, as to discipline troops or an army, to correct, to chastise, to punish, to execute the laws of the church on offenders, with a view to bring them to repentance and reformation of life. That's the discipline of the Lord. It's not just punishment. But he teaches you your whole way of life so that you may share in his holiness. Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. That's his word spoken to his saints. There's a purpose behind it. Number 11, God gives his adopted children the gift of glorification, which is the final act of adoption. Romans eight seventeen, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glorification is a gift to the adopted children of God. Matt Slick describes glorification. He says, Glorification is the future and final work of God upon Christians where he transforms our mortal physical bodies to the eternal physical bodies in which we will dwell forever. It is guaranteed to the believers in Christ Jesus 
and even spoken of in the past tense. In Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. In God's eyes, it's been done already. If you're adopted by him, you're already glorified. We just haven't seen it yet. It's already been purchased. It's already been done. He is unchangeable. No one can thwart his hand. Number 12. God gives his adopted children the witness of the Spirit, in which the Spirit testifies to God's adopted children that they are now legally God's children, and all of the benefits, privileges, responsibilities, and obligations found in God's holy word for his children are now theirs in Christ Jesus. And we'll look at this more later on, hopefully, this witness of the Holy Spirit. But this is God showing his adopted children, all of this is for you. You can take it with full assurance. But that only comes from the witness of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit testifying to you that these privileges are yours, these benefits are yours. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's falling down and laughing. You realize that you're a child of God, and that's by the grace of God as well. So these are just some of the benefits and privileges of being adopted sons and daughters. And we will look at the obligations on the next sermon. And let's just look at two points of application. And I got these from uh, the book of Puritan Theology. I thought they were really good points of application. There were so many more, but I picked these two. And the first one, and this is by Ambrose, As God's adopted sons and daughters, we have been placed in a great family. If we rightly understand this, our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in the family of God will be profoundly affected. The sons of God ought to be the men of our love and delight. We will love fellow adoptees. We are to love fellow adoptees of God because, one, God's singular love for them. If he loves them so much with an everlasting love, we should love our brothers and sisters that way. Number two, their love for God. If our brothers and sisters love God in that way, shouldn't we love our brothers and sisters all the more for loving God our Father? Number three, the truth that is in every Christian believer Those who have experienced much love from him cannot help but love others. The lack of love to any of our brethren is a sign of abiding in the state of damnation or in an unregenerate and carnal state. You can check to see if you're adopted by checking to see if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't, You should be in fear that you're still a son of damnation. That you're still in an unregenerate state. 
He's writing this to the church, everybody that goes to church on Sundays, everybody that professes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. Examine yourselves. Examine your love for the brothers and sisters, not just in this church, everyone who's been adopted by God the Father in Jesus Christ. Second application, this is by Willard. Be always comforting of yourselves with the thoughts of your adoption. Keep this on your mind. Draw your comforts at this tap. Fetch your consolations from this relation. Be therefore often chewing upon the precious privileges of it and make them your rejoicing. Let this joy out of strip the the verdure of every other joy. Let this joy dispel the mist of every sorrow and clear up your souls in the midst of all troubles and difficulties as you await heavenly glory where you will live out your perfect adoption by forever communing with the triune God. There you will dwell at the fountain and swim forever in those blankets or those bankless and bottomless oceans of glory. Think about that. Think about your adoption. And just a final warning, we don't want to make adoption our only doctrine. And we don't want it to to go in the wrong way and we just think about adoption. We need these other doctrines. But that doesn't mean we just get rid of adoption. That doesn't mean we don't think about it. We, we must think about this. It should cause us to live differently as children of God. And we'll look at that later in our responsibilities and obligations. So the final question, have you been adopted by God the Father? Through Jesus Christ, has the Holy Spirit borne witness to you that you are a child of God? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wonderful gift of adoption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, Father called us, the Son purchased us, the Spirit applied this adoption to us. We thank you for that. If anyone here is in unbelief, open their hearts to it, Lord. Adopt them as your child today. In Jesus' name, amen.